Good morning. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about evangelism and telling the story. Um, it's funny because part of what I'm going to talk about right now, uh, Don, before church, came up and was asking questions kind of where, where I stood with some things, and this is a very good way to show where I'm standing with evangelism and techniques right now. And uh, we live in a very different world, and every day it becomes more and more different. And uh, we've made some cultural shifts, and while we may not like the cultural shifts, we at least have to acknowledge that they're there. And so we're going to talk a little bit about evangelism in 2022, what seems to not be working, and trend-wise, what's working in the secular world, and maybe how to reach people that we're failing to reach. Um, so let's talk about the American church and the fact that we're not reaching very many people. Um, the last 20 years, specifically, we've had a giant shift in the culture wars. You know, we could spend a whole Sunday on the culture wars and what's going on right now, and it seems like the culture wars, it's, it's a gearing up right now. There's some things that are happening in our country um, it's kind of coming to a head. I think we're going to have some, some fireworks this summer. Along with the culture wars, there's the anti-Western progression. A lot of Western ideas, free speech, uh, beliefs, different things, people attacking different things. Again, we could spend more time on that, but we're just getting through these. There's been, um, there's been a difference in the importance of accepting responsibility and commitment. There's been a shift, and where we could look at this in the past is we could say there was a higher priority on accepting responsibility and commitment to oneself, to one's family, and to one's community. And I think that all three of those areas where we used to just assume that people were going to accept responsibility and commitment on those three things, we can't necessarily guarantee that anymore. Um, you could uh, spend a little time in school when you'd see the shift that has taken place and how that affects us in the schools. Been a lot of corruption in authority figures. So again, that just kind of goes against institutions and people, people that maybe we respect in government services and education and the church. There's been different scandals and corruption. Also, the church has kind of gotten to an entertainment church mode. And the entertainment church mode has kind of ran its course. It's not working like it was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and we're beginning to see the fruit of that it was not very long-lasting. Um, and then we have evangelical institutions in America that are kind of living off the successes of the 60s and the 70s. And uh, part of that probably has to do with the age of most of the leaders in the church, still going about those means and methods. But, but things have really shifted, and I think there's, there's probably five or six more things we can put on this list for reasons why the American church is not winning. Um, Barna Studies, is a big group that does a lot of church studies, and they're like the church studies group. They also do other polling for other people. But uh, we're going to take a look at some Barna Studies just to kind of see the state of the church. Um, this study goes from 93 to 20, and the thing that's scary about this study is that it does only go till 20, and then we had COVID in 20, and things have actually gotten worse in the church since 2020. 
So what you're going to see are numbers that are pre-COVID and do not reflect post-COVID, post-pandemic numbers. Um, just as an example, there's multiple churches that I know, fairly large churches in the area, that are still only at 65% of what they were before COVID. So just looking at these numbers, and then you're going to throw some more hits on it, it's, it's getting bleak. But we got to define some stuff first. This is how Barna defines our three categories of Americans that are, that are pulled. There's practicing Christians, those that identify as Christians, agree strongly that faith is important in their lives and have attended church within the past month. Then they qualify non-practicing Christians as self-identified Christians who don't qualify as practicing, meaning uh, they, they're Christian by name alone. Maybe they don't really care about how important faith is down on their list and they haven't set foot in church maybe since last Easter. Um, and then you have non-Christians, U.S. adults, who do not identify as Christians at all. Um, so, this is probably kind of small in there. It's about as big as I could get it. The red line is practicing Christians starting in 2000. And then it ends in 2020. Of those polled in America, 45% or 43% at one point said they were practicing Christians. 20 years later, down to 25% practicing Christians. So those are people that actually care about their faith and go to church. The blue line is your non-practicing Christians, and that starts at about 35%, and the non-practicing Christians went up. So, the non-practicing Christians, again, are self-identified Christians who do not qualify as practicing, meaning they're not going to church, they don't find their faith very important, it's down on their list. So what we're seeing, just from looking at this, is you lost 43 to 25% of practicing Christians, and it looks like they converted into non-practicing Christians, and then there was quite a spike in non-Christians. So at the beginning of 2000, 20% of Americans polled said that they were non-Christian, and then now 32% in 2020 identify as non-Christian. So they had growth by 12%, the non-practicing Christians. So what it's looking like to me, the growth in non-practicing Christians is a bunch of practicing Christians just staying home and not doing anything now, not belonging to any group. Now we can look at generations because this has something to say too. So this is weekly church attendance by generation. We have the millennials um, in red. We have Gen X there in the light blue. We have the boomers in orange, and then what they just put down as elders, anything that's outside of the boomer realm. So if you're older than a boomer, I guess you're just an elder, and that's okay. It's a good title. Um, but you'll see that the elders went down. Uh, boomers also went down. Gen X, I mean, everybody, they all went down. Some categories went down by more than others. But there's just a trend within all generations that are just not going. And most people, when they think about the trend of not going to church, they like to just say that it's the young people who are not going to church. We just need to get more young people in there because we just seems like they're just not going to church. Uh, our surveys are telling us it's all generations are just not going to church. It's not just it's not an age thing. Now, church attendance is not necessarily 
tell you how the spiritual life of that individual is doing. I'm not saying that, but it is a good indicator on if that person is involved within a community in doing the works of the kingdom. And that's what I'm more worried about when I look at numbers. Um, so we are not, if you look back here, we already had a hard time with Gen X and especially millennials. Um, Gen Z doesn't qualify in this yet because a lot of Gen Z, you have some Gen Z adults, but there's not a lot of numbers there yet. But the Gen Z adult numbers that I've seen are, are right there, right about with the millennials as far as attendance. Um, but what you're seeing is that they were small groups to begin with in 2003, and they remained smaller, smaller all the way through, meaning we're not reaching them. Um, the boomers and the elders still have like still a good chunk of them that are going to church. But uh, what do we do about the youngers? Why are we not, why are we not hitting that, that demographic? Um, this is something that I, I did a business degree when I was in college. And I still read some business journals every once in a while, especially in marketing. Marketing is just kind of fun. Um, but the growth of stories in marketing among the young has been a title that I've ran into multiple times. And what's interesting is uh, all these marketing firms ran into a problem in the 2000s. They could not figure out uh, how to advertise to millennials and especially to Gen Z. The traditional things were not working. And their traditional things with ads used to, you know, we're not talking just like, sports games buy beer ads. We're talking more of like, how do we get people to invest in our product and believe that our product is better? Because they're looking for brand loyalty. Um, and what they found is that they didn't want to be hit with facts. They didn't really want to be convinced that way. Uh, they wanted to respond to a story, which was strange to them. The idea that you could just throw things out there and usually people, they grabbed on um, based on, oh, logic, I, this facts, well, I, I need to be productive, I need to be responsible, and if this one is 20% better, I'm going to go with what's 20% better. Uh, Gen Z and the millennials didn't care about the 20% better. They didn't care about thinking like that. They didn't think about, ooh, like it, it was, how am I in this? How am I in this? And some people could say, ah, it's because they're very focused on themselves, those generations. Well, even if they are focused on themselves, they, they found a way to engage these, these individuals. And the way that they engaged them was through story. Um, big stories about what the products and companies were. And so they started selling stories to people. And those firms that engaged in this way found that post-story brand loyalty, meaning the brand loyalty they got out of these individuals after they figured out how to get these people to participate in their story, uh, the brand loyalty levels exceeded the boomer brand loyalty levels in their products. So they're like, oh, we can sell these stories. How do you fit in with this? Um, how do you personally fit in with this? That was just kind of how it was working. They needed to feel like they were part of the story. Um, the stories would start connecting communities, and uh, then they start, there's like a shared value thing that happens when you start engaging in those communities. I don't want to trivialize the gospel to compare it to marketing. That's not the point of this. I'm not saying that we're selling something. I just want to point out that demographics have shifted and how they desire to be talked to has shifted. 
And there are things that worked in the past that are just not working because generationally and culturally, things are different. Whether that's good or bad, I don't want to sit here and preach on that. But what I am saying is we know that things are different. The American church is still relying on 30-second ads. When we approach people, when we look at street evangelism, it's like, it's like a cheap commercial. We're pointing it to you, and we're pointing it to why you need our product. Um, this has been going on for 50 or 60 years. This has been the way evangelism has been done. Uh, you can refer to it as the signs on the street. You can refer to it as the turn or burn whatever you want to do with it. I'm not minimalizing sin. I'm not minimalizing hell. I'm just saying it's not working. Um, I think it's time to shift evangelism paradigms. That's just where we're at. The ad has typically been, show them that they're a sinner. So you show them that they're a sinner by, did you steal a piece of bubble gum when you were five, when you went into a drugstore? Well, if you did, then you stole and you broke one of God's 10 commandments. And because you've broken one of God's Ten Commandments, you need Jesus. Now, is there anything false about what I just said? No. That's, that's all true. But is that the technique that we need to use? Uh, Jesus was God's only son, and his death is the only thing that's going to take away all your sin. Again, nothing wrong with that. That is one completely true statement. Do you now see that you are a sinner and therefore you need Jesus? Say these words with me. Fill out this card. You are now not going to hell. You should come to our church, but if not, just don't stop believing and you're going to be good. That has been the evangelical outreach method that I have seen over and over and over and over and over. Maybe other people have not seen that so much, but if you go watch Street Evangelism on YouTube, for example, this is what you get. This is not working the warnings are not working. The turn and burn is not working. Again, not minimalizing sin. There are people that would like to take sin out of the story. You are a sinner. You need Jesus. Repent. That's the 30-second ad. We may take a couple more minutes to talk about why you need it and when you realize you need it. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is God's son. I work in a school with a bunch of kids who can't tell me who Jesus was. 30 years ago, most of the kids that I went to elementary school with knew who Jesus was. There was at least societal connection to who Jesus is. Now they don't know who Jesus is. Who is John 3.16? I saw a sign at the football game. Who's John 3.16? Character from some book? They have no clue. 30 years ago, people knew what John 3.16 was. Even if you didn't go to church, you knew enough, you saw the sign, you were like, oh, okay. Things are different. I'm not saying if God tells you to do street evangelism, listen to God, don't listen to BJ. Do what God tells you to do. I get that. Um, I'm not saying the altar calls are bad. What I am saying, the technique that we have fallen on seems less effective as time goes on. And what we're finding out with entertainment church and making emotional appeals that we tried with Gen X, we tried to change it up for Gen X. For my generation, they tried to get us with some emotional appeals, some music that might make us sad and think about things and then some emotional appeals. What we're finding is that those converts are not going the long haul. 
They were filling churches, but they're drifting out. We looked at the, we looked at the graphs. They're, they're, it's just not happening. Um, remember that responsibility and commitment are not as important as they were in our culture. And so you're losing some of those values. You're losing some of the stick-with-itness. So what you, if what you have is thin, you're going to lose it, especially if you're not committed. You're going to lose it. And what I'm saying is that we have in our Bible a wonderful, coherent, detailed book that tells the complete story and where we fit into that story. We serve the creator of the universe who invited us back into the family. His family has a place and a task for each of us and every one of us to do, to bring more of the unshakable kingdom to our communities. Everybody has a role. King Jesus is our brand loyalty, regardless of what version of church that you go to and what you prescribe to. We're all team Jesus. That is, that's our king. That's our story. Holy Spirit is ready to explain the story to us over time. Teach us more and more. So what I am suggesting is that when we start engaging in evangelistic outreach, when we start talking with people and we need to make those moves, we need to be able to teach them the story. And the story doesn't start with, you stole a piece of bubble gum, you're done. But Jesus, the son of God, is going to take care of that. The story starts, I think you can start it at the beginning. And this is where you get into what they call postmodern apologetics. Because there's a lot of people with a lot of smart butt answers for things that you may talk to them about. There's a lot of fights that people get into when they start telling the story. We just need to avoid the fights. And so I'd like to talk about that. So let's start the story this week, and we'll finish next week. The story that we need to talk to people about, we need to be firm on. Uh, in the beginning, there was God. Just God. God is eternal. We need to recognize that fact. We stand on faith for that. There is no scientific rationale for something that exists forever. You're just not going to get it. God in the beginning, the Trinity. The Bible, I've added verses so we can kind of back up stuff here. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my serv servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. He is the beginning of everything. He is God. Psalms, again, just reinstates that with the creation aspect. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you have ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness had not overcome it. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning was the Trinity. The Bible backs up that the beginning of everything, an existent triune God. First thing, that's the first part of the story. Jesus was there, Holy Spirit was there, Yahweh was there. We can't get tripped up on the, you're just making up a, a Jesus is God thing. That's just an invention of the late church. Nope. Biblical text. It's always been part of the story. 
Then we move on to creation of spiritual beings. There are different places you can see this in the beginning of Genesis and later in Job. There's others. I just picked up different verses. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over the creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us. He is talking to a spiritual family. He is not talking to the Trinity. Why would God be talking to himself? We've talked about this before numerous times in the last year and a half. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Job talks about it too. Job 38.4, this is where God is talking. Where, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So again, we have a scene where God is creating things and there are spiritual beings existent with God. Now, beginning God, Trinity, some point he makes spiritual beings. We don't know where. I don't think it's important. We just know that they come before the formation of earth. And then we move on to our mud patch. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is where we can start getting into contention with other Christians, and people that you're talking to will want to fight about this. Um, The part that they're going to fight about is when we get into days. They don't like the days thing. I have different translations up here. In one of my classes I took this semester, I spent six hours on Genesis 1, 1 through 3. I've seen enough Genesis 1, 1 through 3. I've read all the different things. I've watched a lot of videos from professors on it. There's interesting things in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. This is from the Tanakh, which is the newest, it's, it's the latest of the Jewish translations of the Bible. Notice how, how the Hebrew people put it. When God began to create the heaven and the earth, the earth being unformed and void, with darkness over the surface of the deep, and a wind or the Spirit of God sweeping over the water. People can make grammatical and logical arguments to interpret this in different ways. Some people like to read that first line and it mixes right into that second line. And what that does is it starts lumping that first part into the first day. There's nothing grammatically or logically argued that interprets it that way. That's just the way that we've been interpreting it since about 1600. When a bunch of dudes in Germany and Austria and Switzerland decided they had found the peak of all Christianity. And that's where we get our Protestant systematic theology and Reformation and different things like that. Um, You can get very much into Hebrew grammar here. I don't want to do that. It's the first part of prepositional noun. Uh, one, one grammatically does not start a narrative. We do know that when we talk to scholars, especially looking at older Hebrew, we know that one, one does not start a narrative. So if you want to believe it's part of day one, that's cool. If someone's going to argue with you about it, it doesn't have to be part of day one. The idea that there was something there before God started doing something on the earth. There could be a mud ball in space. We don't know how old the mud ball in space is. It doesn't matter. It's not worth fighting about because grammatically, just looking into the Hebrew, 
All right, so then you're talking to me about Hebrew again, da-da-da-da-da. Well, we're not Hebrews, so how do why the translations matter? Let's look at two very, con- like, very common translations on this, just real quick. ESV. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth, or face of the waters. So there they've crunched everything together without anything to denote a difference. However, the NIV does. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop. Now, the earth was... Do you see the difference there? There is a difference in how they take what the, what the Jewish Bible just puts a dash at because it's not a true start of a narrative. They left that out. If you look back, they put a dash there because it's not a full narrative. So the point of this... The age of the earth is not worth arguing about because there are different people that read this part differently. There are people in this church with the different Bibles that say different things with this. If you have an NIV and someone beside you has an ESV, it's not a fight to fight about the age of the earth. Now, this has nothing to do with the days yet. This is just mud ball in space. So you can see that the NIV puts the now in there. Um, it's just interesting. Different people do different things with it. So current picture. This is where we're at in our story. There's the existence of the Trinity within eternity. No beginning, no end for them. Creation of spiritual beings. There's no certain time frame for creation of unformed and void earth. We don't know exactly when that happened. Um, some of you may think it's still a day one thing. That's fine. Establishment of order on the face of the earth is next. That's where we'll get into the rest of Genesis 1. The point I bring up about the age of the earth in the time frame of creation of the unformed and void earth, by the way, the void word actually has different connotations. It's the same that they translate as like chaotic. So you can kind of think about it as a primordial mud ball with volcanoes and raging water or whatever. And if you go, we could get into that, but if you go into actually Genesis 1, 3 a little deeper, um, it has the connotations of actually like the monsters that lived in the deep. Like it was just a crazy place. Um, but this is where we're at with our story. So let's eliminate the need to fight about the time frame of Earth. That's, there's people that I see walk away right there. That's nonsense. We don't need it. Creation story. This is a good way for us to remember the creation story. And it helped me to remember what days were what and what God was doing for what. So day one, light and dark, creates light and dark. Day two, sea and sky. Day three, a fertile earth. And then he like repeats what he did on those first three days. He goes back to each one of those in order. So you see the the form column and the fullness column. That's one way to remember it. So day one, light and dark. Day four, he actually made the lights of day and night. So he had the form, then he put in within the fullness. Does that make sense? It's just a way to help remember what days had what. And it's interesting that that's the way that it's presented. Day two, he had made the sea and sky. Day five, he populated the sea and the sky. Day three, he made a fertile earth. Day six, he put all the creatures of the land on the earth. What's also fun is that with the fertile earth in day three, you have vegetation, which is the lowest of life forms. 
And then day six at the end, you have the highest of life forms, man. So it's kind of like a reflective, we have this, now we can have this, we have this, that's how the columns are set up. So that's one way to remember the creation story that helped me. Um, it's just the symmetry is kind of cool. Uh, we don't need to fight about the time, amount of time to create. I don't want to get into arguments with people about days. It's just not, it's not part of the story. As long as you are recognizing Yahweh as that creator, I don't want to fight about days. Yeah, I don't want to fight about days. It, you can get into the word yam in Hebrew, which is day. And gosh, I spent four hours on that. People will fight about the connotation of yam. And there's convincing arguments on both sides. And it's boring. And it's an old debate. It's what people have been going through. So let's look at that last line. Yahweh created everything. Move along your story. Okay? If you feel very fiercely about the days, that's fine. I'm not giving you one way or another on how I even think about it. It's just not worth the fight. Yahweh, creator of everything, through the word, which was Jesus. Holy Spirit was right there hovering over the waters. That's what's happening. That's what we need to recognize. They created it all. It's our turn. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What do we do? What is our purpose? This is our purpose paragraph. In the beginning, this is before all the bad stuff. Our purpose is fill the world and subdue it, rule over the world, create an even better place. We're coming out of Eden, the garden. The rest of the world needs to look like Eden. Subdue the world, make it a better place. Eat from the tree of life. That's how Yahweh sustains us. We have free will. We've noticed already the rejoicing of the, the, rejoicing of the angels and spiritual beings. They're into it. They have emotion. They have free will. We have free will. There's something about God and his ordering of wanting free will with us. That's something to stress. And don't eat from the knowledge of good and evil. That's what we can pull out of this. The serpent thing being. The serpent is craftier. We know that. The Bible says it's craftier. There's different translations on craftier. We have to believe that the serpent being was more than just a snake. Because he's referred to later in the Bible too. Um, some people take the straight up talking snake thing. Just reminds me of Narnia, which is why I put Narnia on there. There's this belief that maybe all the angels talked before, the, or all the animals talked before the fall. I've heard that come out of people's mouths. Um, again, we think it's a spiritual being. I can refer to stuff in Revelations that points back. I can refer to stuff that Paul says that points back. So the serpent, spiritual being, he can keep the serpent thing. Um, Eve isn't alarmed that this talking snake comes up to her. There's nothing where like the Bible lets us know that she was scared by this thing. So there must have been some kind of normalcy because she's just talking in conversation with this thing and has no problem with it. Um, and he convinces Eve to question the goodness of God. That's the lie that's gone on for thousands of years. That's it right there. Question the goodness of God. Why do some people leave the faith? 
because they begin to question the goodness of God because A, they don't have a relationship, a very deep relationship usually. There's always exceptions. And B, they're not spending the time in the Bible to get to know God. And when you're not doing those two things, when your relationship isn't there with prayer, when your relationship isn't there in the word, you are susceptible to questioning the goodness of God. And once you have questioned and made a decision on the goodness of God that is not accurate, you're likely to go. And so that's part of the story that we have to emphasize is the goodness of God. And we'll get to that. Eve goes for it. She gets Adam on board. Yahweh curses the snake being. He's cast to the ground. There's lots of spiritual connotations with the whole serpent curse thing too. When you start looking at this stuff, there's more going on there. Says that his seed will be against human seed. That's interesting. What's the seed of Satan? We know what human seed are because we're sitting here as human seeds. What's Satan's seed? Maybe we'll figure that out later. Um, we'll get his head crushed, and then we have a war. From that moment on, we have war. Evil experience pain in childbirth. The desire will be for her husband who will rule over her. Adam will have to put more work into everything. And then you have this idea of entropy coming into the universe where God had already stilled all the chaos. He had taken care of the void and the unformed. And now we have some of that chaos reemerging. Things are going to get rough on earth. Sin enters the life of humanity. The Garden of Eden is sealed up with spiritual beings. The Bible says he places the beings there in a flaming sword, which would be cool. Flaming swords are just cool. Tree of life is now out of reach. We are not allowed to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life was sustaining our, our life. Death is now the future of mankind. So we have a death problem now. We have a sin problem. We have a death problem. Let's finish this for the week. So our story synopsis for this week, when we are talking to people and when we go through things, there is the existence of the Trinity within eternity. No beginning, no end. There is at some point a creation of a spiritual family. That explains all the spiritual beings that we run into. There's no certain time frame for creation of unformed and void earth. Then there is the establishment of order on the face of the earth. Life is brought forth. The human family is produced. Subdue the earth, make it like the garden. There is a rebellious serpent being that connives his plan and executes his plan. Sin and death enter the world, and now humanity has a much harder job to do. And the story will go on next week. So hopefully that's a nice, concise way of getting through a lot of that early stuff when we talk to people. That's part of the story. The story is an overarching story, and it's more than a 30-second ad. It's more than two minutes of pointing out sin. It is a giant cosmic story. And guess what? People love giant cosmic stories these days. They spend billions of dollars to go sit and watch somebody else's giant cosmic story in a theater 15 times a year. They go out and they buy the books. They want to be part of a story. This story is real. The story is not fiction. This is a story that we all belong to. And the idea is that we need to show people how they can contribute to the overarching story. We have entered back in now, currently, into that family of God, and we have things to do. You have a role to play.
You're, starting, you're stepping into your real character. And when you look at what everybody does for escape, everybody wants to be part of the story. And this is the real story. And that was my point today. Um, it's time to move away from certain techniques. It's time to teach the story. It's time to get people involved. Come be part of the family. And we got to let Holy Spirit do his thing. And uh, again, I don't want to downplay sin or hell. I'm not that guy. But when the story ends, when I look at what Jesus did for us and what Jesus took care of, sin and hell are on the bottom of that list for me. I'm more excited about the stuff at the top of that list. And so that's where we'll stop this week, and I will resume the story next week. So let's pray. Dear Lord, creator of everything, Lord, I am just so happy to be able to serve you. I am happy that your designs for us were always good, that you desired us from the start. That's the reason you created us. The fact that you knew what was going to happen, the fact that you didn't want to cheat, and you still went with the plan, that your desire is for us to be with you, doing things with you, for you. And Lord, I just ask that you would give that desire to us to fully step into our roles as part of your human family, to understand our significance in your whole cosmic plan and how we can do better things for you on earth. Jesus, we thank you for stepping out of eternity, coming down, taking the nails, taking all of that for us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are with us now and that from taming chaotic water to coming and living in our hearts, you are doing your work too. And I just ask that you would just let us ponder these mysteries, that you would let us think about this, and Lord, that the, talking about this with people would become natural, that relaying your story would be a peaceful thing, it would do, be a productive thing as we talk to people and that they can see their place and that they can find hope in you. Lord, we live in an age where everything seems meaningless. The suicide rates of young people are skyrocketing because people have no meaning. And Lord, you have provided that meaning. Lord, we love you. We thank you for that. And I just ask that you would continue to teach us, continue to, to reveal things to us throughout the week. We love you. We thank you for all of that. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.